Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 115. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You can find Psalm 115 on page 494. I'll be reading there in a minute. We're in the middle of our summer sermon series on the book of Psalms, and I don't know if your experience is anything like my experience, but um, so often when I've read the Psalms, and in my annual Bible reading plan, getting through the Psalms, 150 of them, takes two full months. So I'm in the Psalms for a, a long time, it seems, and over the years it has felt to me often like one Psalm just runs into the next. You know, David's always getting chased by someone. He's always crying out for refuge and um, a suffering and oppression mixed with cries of faith. But, but I, over the years, reading the Psalms year after year, I've come to appreciate more and more that isn't that a taste of real life? That uh, isn't this exactly what I need to follow after Christ? not a silver bullet, a magical solution to fix every challenge that I'm facing, but a dose of daily grace, a reminder of God's faithfulness to His promises, of His power as Creator and Redeemer to intervene in my life now and for eternity. These are the Bible's discipleship songs. They meet us where we are, and so let's continue to mine them for treasure. Psalm 115, listen carefully. These are God's words. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear Him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless His people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth He has given to mankind. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to praise you, the living God. What a grace you've given us to receive revelation from you, the one true God, the only true God, distinct as king above all kings. Maybe more accurately to say the king above all so-called kings, pretenders who would claim to be king, you alone are the sovereign one. You alone are the almighty. And we freely, we joyfully, willingly return praise to you. Receive it, Lord. 
Fill us with your spirit. Open our eyes that we might attend to your word. That we might see you high and lifted up and worship you all the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start with this question, where is your God? Where is your God? The, the psalm begins with this negative statement. It's pretty striking relative to other language in the psalms. Oh, and by the way, I, I forgot in the first service, I forgot again. Um, throughout our time in Psalm 115, I'm going to refer to the Lord, if you look in your English Bibles, capital L-O-R-D, as the personal name of God as He revealed Himself first to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And that is the best we can capture it in English, Yahweh. It was four Hebrew consonants, and it's translated L-O-R-D in your English Bibles. Why, why am I going to speak the name of Yahweh? Because over and against the, the gods of the nations, the false gods, the idols, this one true God has a name. He has, he has a, he, he is a being. He has characteristics. He has personality. And that particular God, the one true God, is going to be contrasted with every other so-called God. Okay, so Yahweh, it's, a, it's the more literal translation or an attempt at translating the four Hebrew letters that capture the personal name of God. When you see capital L, little O-R-D, that's a title, Lord. When it's all caps, it's His name. Okay, well, The psalm starts with this negative statement, not to us, Yahweh, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. It, it's an expression of a desire that glory be appropriately credited to the one who alone is deserving of it. And the rest of the psalm will follow that idea. So the question for us is, whose glory are you seeking? Whose glory are you seeking? Verse 2 continues, it recognizes the disdain or the mockery of Israel's neighbors who ask, where is their God? Because they can't see this Yahweh. Why is that the case in Israel's worship practices? Because commandment number one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other God beside me. And commandment number two says, you shall not make for yourself a graven image or a, a physical representation of Yahweh, the one true God. So the nations look about them, peek in on Israel's worship, and they don't see little figures. They don't see gold and silver and wood carvings and representations of this one true God. In fact, the psalmist continues with an answer. He's not embarrassed. It's not a difficult question to answer. He says in verse 3, our God is in heaven. And he adds this, he does whatever pleases him. And then verses 4 through 7, we're going to refer to these four verses a lot this morning. Verses 4 through 7 show off a little tood, a little sarcasm. The psalmist pokes back at this, at the, this collection of false gods, the, the gods of the nations out there. He says, they have mouths but can't speak. They have ears but can't hear. They have eyes but can't see. He goes on and on and on to point out the obvious, like the kid in the tale of the emperor's new clothes who can't help but point out the obvious that no one else wants to admit, which is, this guy has no clothes on. He's naked. And the psalmist here is pointing out the obvious, which is, these gods have body parts that don't work. They just sit there. They're inert. They're impotent. 
face value, as interesting as that little rant may be to us, doesn't seem to be all that relevant. Because in today's world, especially here in the West, we don't typically worship carved images. We don't practice idolatry like ancient peoples did. But here's what I hope we'll find together. Psalm 115 is pointing out something universal, something that applies to every human being, whether you consider yourself spiritual and religious or not. To start, we'll turn to Romans chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is describing sin, uh, humanity's rebellion against the Creator, and he, and he labels it centrally idolatry, all sin. Here's how he summarizes it in two verses. They, they're sort of parallel. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles, little figurines, little statues. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. The problem with sin at root is not just poor valuation, as if one were to value a cupcake more than a full week's paycheck. And we see that in Scripture with Esau valuing a bowl of stew, he's starving over his own birthright. That's not the, the fullness of what sin is about, improper valuation. No, sin, sin is far deeper. Sin is, sin is far more destructive far more shocking. It is a backwards, upside-down valuation. It completely, sin completely misses the all-surpassing, supreme glory of God the Creator over anything that He Himself has created. It's got it backwards. And when that happens, when we value creation over the Creator, the irony is that creation begins to rule over us and always destruction and dysfunction follow. There are basically two distinct, mutually exclusive, nothing in between choices for every human being. The two choices are worship the Creator or worship created things, stuff, circumstances, people. Worship God, look to Him for all things, or look to and supremely value wealth, status, success, romance, beauty for your meaning, for your fulfillment. The choice is stark. Find your value in God, your identity rooted in Christ, or find your value, your identity in philosophical ideals, or race, or nationalistic pride, or freedom of self-expression sexually, or, or even healthy freedoms that are afforded to us in this land under the U.S. Constitution, where will you find your value and your identity? Will you worship the Creator, or will you worship what He has created? This either-or is the litmus test of biblical faith, and it's why the Ten Commandments begin with a contrast between false worship and true worship. Author and philosopher Jamie Smith writes this, the great reformer Martin Luther once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Smith continues, we become what we worship because what we worship is what we love. We can't 
not worship because we can't not love something as ultimate. Where is your God? Whose glory are you seeking? That's the question for us to consider. That leads secondly to the irony of man-made religion. One level deeper. In the year 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey besieged and then conquered Jerusalem, ending Jewish independence. And according to the historian Tacitus, when Pompey entered the inner sanctuary of Jerusalem's temple on purpose to desecrate it, and perhaps out of curiosity, he pulled back the curtain and was shocked to find nothing. No idols, no carved images, no physical representations of this Israelite God, just a bunch of sacred furniture. Even in the first century BC, the nations wondered, where is their God? There's no evidence. You can't see Him, touch Him. Maybe the modern version of that question is even more challenging. Why does anyone need God? The world sees faith as a crutch. The world sees religion as a sorry substitute for self-reliance and hard work and the pursuit of scientific technological advances to aid the progress, the evolution of the human race. The secular person might say, where is your God? I have cutting-edge research, a fat pile of cash, human knowledge to provide what I need to secure my future. In a sense, the contrast between Psalm 115 and the modern pushback against a biblical faith is the contrast between the unseen Creator, where is He? And everything you can see, taste, smell, touch. That shouldn't be a surprise because people have always preferred what they can see, and people have always expressed contempt for what they can't see. People have always valued the now over the later. And that that's represented in some of our old-fashioned proverbs. Have you ever heard uh, the, the proverb, a bird in hand is worth two in a bush? And it's basically saying, I want certainty. I, I want, in financial terms, a realized gain over an unrealized gain. I want to know what I have. There's a related proverb that says, better an egg today than a hen tomorrow. You say, well, that's kind of short-sighted, but that's precisely the point. There's, there's, a, there's an element of delayed gratification that's necessary here, and the proverb is saying, um, I'd rather not wait because tomorrow is a hope. Tomorrow is an anticipation of a reality that I don't have, but an egg I can hold, I can eat, I can appreciate it. It has value to me. Those, those proverbs relate both of them to a, a research study I'll never forget reading about in a, a college psychology course. Uh, researchers at Stanford brought four-year-olds into a room where on the table um, was a marshmallow. Uh, variations on this theme involved a chocolate chip cookie. And they said to the, the, each little child, one at a time, they said, you can have the cookie, you can eat the marshmallow, but if you can wait a few minutes, when I come back, I'll give you two. And they left. 
and the cameras observed this child. Some, some of them were, were physically like in agony, you know, sitting on their hands, closing their eyes, looking away, you know, so, because the, the siren call of the marshmallow, you know, was, was saying, eat me. Um, one author examining these studies said, sometimes experimenters had not even finished talking about the experiment when the kids already ate the marshmallow or cookie. They couldn't wait. They followed these kids for years and found that the lack of self-control, the, the inability to delay gratification was tied to lower test scores, to higher BMI, body mass index, and there was a slight correlation with an increased risk of substance abuse. Whatever you make of that, I think that picture of four-year-olds has a lot to teach us about ourselves when it comes to living by the seen versus the unseen and the now versus the later. Here's an example straight from Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the incredible amount of suffering and persecution that he has endured in his life. He rehearses it because he's trying to prove himself to these Corinthian believers who are doubting him. And this is what he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And this is the striking part. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Do you see the play here between the, the seen and the unseen and the now? Light and momentary troubles, they're going to pass away. And later, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul is saying in, in his biblical wisdom, this is the only way we can make sense of suffering. And if we can make sense of suffering through this now versus later and seen versus unseen, we can navigate the challenges of, of a fallen self in a broken and dysfunctional world. What's our typical attitude, our typical mindset? We feel, we see suffering in the moment, and we always want the fix. We always want the relief now, don't we? That, that characterizes our prayers. God, I have a little sniffle. Can you make me better? You know, or, or, or amp, amp it up exponentially. Whatever it happens to be, a broken bone, cancer, uh, a chronic illness. We want relief now. We want the eternal glory of heaven here and now. And so often when the unseen creator does not play by our rules... We pick up our toys and bring them somewhere else. We take matters into our own hands. We take over the driving, the wheel. We pursue our self-made plans to achieve happiness, relief, generate meaning. That leads us back to the biting statements, Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7. This is no surprise to an Old Testament believer because the Old Testament is um, filled with teachings about the folly of putting anything man-made in the place of the one true God. This is why acknowledging God as creator is not a secondary doctrine. It, it is essential to any biblical faith. 
I'd even say it's essential to saving faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledging God as creator. He's the one who, who originated all things. He is the source. He is the preexistent supreme being. Think of anything that you create, whether you've gone to some pottery shop and, you know, done the, the clay thing and the bake, baking it in the oven, or, or if you just make a cake at home or farm cookies or, or Play-Doh with preschoolers. Whatever you make, whatever you create is subject to your will. You shape it the way you want it. You frost it or you leave it plain. If you made it what it is, how can it possibly exercise authority over your life? How can it possibly bring you back meaning, fulfillment, solve your issues? Now, we would say, no, we are not like the primitive peoples who carved idols out of wood and silver and gold, verse 4, and bowed down to them. But God's substitutes in our lives are always man-made. And if you have a hard time picturing what those might be, is there anything more man-made than your own hard work, than your own effort, your stick your self-reliance and independence that feed pride? Because you're just fine the way you are. You don't need God. Those are all God's substitutes. And the ugly truth is that any attempt to deny or minimize the authority of the, the creator king over your life, any man-made attempt to achieve happiness and success and pleasure and meaning, every single one of them ends up enslaving you instead. Paul, the apostle, um, gives us a picture of this. He's, he's rebuking the Galatians for turning away from the one true God. And this is what he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? These first century people to whom he was writing were not all formerly pagan worshipers bowing down to little carvings. And yet, Paul's language makes it clear he didn't say, I'm just talking to a few of you who used to do this. He makes it clear as a, as a picture of you were once this, but now you are this. What does he say you once were? In unbelief, in, in rejection of the one true God, you were slaves in bowing down to what were not gods. The only contrast is, Galatians will say, you are free when you bow down to the only true God who deserves that kind of worship. The difference between Yahweh, the one true God, and the false gods, the idols of the nations, it is not that they have body parts, but Yahweh doesn't. It's that Yahweh has parts that work because He's real. He can accomplish things. He sees, He hears. No, the Lord is not like a human being. We don't want to lower him to be just like us. But in order for us to understand his characteristics, the Bible constantly resorts to, not resorts to, um, utilizes a literary device called anthropomorphic language. It's a big word that simply means um, the Scripture writers use words that connect with our um, humanness so that we can understand an approximation of what God is supremely greater. Here's an example from Psalm 17. We, don't, we won't walk through these, but Psalm 17 
says, it gives us a sense that in contrast to the gods of the nations, the one true God speaks, His mouth works, He has eyes, He sees all things, He has ears, He hears the cries of His people in prayer, and He has a right hand that is a symbol of His power to rescue and save His people. Last thought, you are what you love. Have you ever heard uh, people say that an old married couple begins to look like each other? Or uh, a longtime dog owner starts to look like his or her dog? You know, we, we can have fun with those lighthearted statements, but the variation on that in verse 8 is not lighthearted at all because it's an indictment in the middle of the psalm of false worshipers, of false gods. The psalmist says, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You will begin to look like the false gods you worship. You are what you worship, and you worship what you love. You become like the things you value most greatly. That is worship, religious or not. A few examples. These are the best I could think of. Um, Late at night, last night. If you worship the false god of tolerance, what is that? How does that exhibit its values? Well, the, the false god of tolerance says, I, I must value all viewpoints equally. The god of tolerance says, I cannot speak negatively about another person's point of view, another person's reference point. I can't say there, my, mine is more true than theirs. Um, how do you become like this god? Ironically, you become intolerant, especially against the exclusive claims of Christ. You reject the thought, the idea that anything can be true with a capital T. What if you worship the false god of money? It's the one Jesus singles out in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a competing god. If you worship this false god, you want wealth, you believe it'll make you happy. How do you become like this god? Ironically, so very often, you become more stingy. Now, you have a lot, so maybe you share, maybe you give, but does it really hurt? Does it really cause you to sacrifice, or is it out of convenience? And you place a value on everything, including time spent with other people. Everything becomes about a cost-benefit analysis of what's worth your time and your money and your resources. Here's the fundamental false god we all worship, at least at times, self. Now, no one who's emotionally stable goes around saying they worship themselves. But maybe this is a unique, uh, not a unique, but a particular variation that afflicts us here in Bergen County, a variation on worshiping self. If you greatly value, which is worshiping, education, because it leads to achievement. And if you get a taste of success, you start making a lot of money. You land that job that gives you a ton of influence. You become a thought leader in your industry. You're a rising star in your world. Then how do you become like this God of self? Prayerlessness so very often sets in. If you are a little g, lowercase god, why do you need anything from anyone else? 
you generate your own worth, happiness, contentment. You don't pray humbly and dependently to someone who is greater than you. That's how false worship makes you like it. You have your degrees. You have your accomplishments, your track record. You have your list of contacts to whom you could go and pull back some favors. You will look more and more like your false god and develop more self-righteousness, more disdain for people who just don't get it, who haven't arrived like you have, who are second-class citizens, and you're tempted to hang out only with the fellow elites who have also gone to the right schools and achieved the right high-flying careers, and yet you'll grow more isolated because friendships just can't get that deep when the circle around you are united by everyone's common focus on self. Whose glory are you seeking? Any substitute for the supremely glorious one himself will enslave you and destroy you. How do you escape from these cycles? The rest of Psalm 115 points us in the right direction. First, verses 9 and 11 call you to worship. They say, trust in Yahweh, that particular God, and no other. He provides help and protection. And then verses 12 to 15 say, He is the one who brings, who brings um, true flourishing in life. He blesses His people. Why does it point that out? Because the gods of the nations, why do they have so many gods? Well, cover your bases, you know? If this God doesn't listen because of this sacrifice and bring rain so that your crops flourish, maybe this guy will. Blessing is always the name of the game. You know, push a button and, and make your selection and hope that the God participates in your game, give and take game. No, Yahweh, the one true God, is the one who truly blesses His people and provides flourishing. And then the key in verses 17 and 18 a contrast with verse 8. Remember verse 8 was the indictment. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them, these false, worship, uh, false gods. Well, what happens if you worship and trust dead non-gods? You become like them. You die. You become insignificant, nameless. Here in verses 17 and 18, what happens if you worship and trust the living God? You become like Him. You live forevermore. How's that possible? When you and I so often, too often, seek the glory of another, give highest worth and valuation not to the one who supremely deserves it, but to another, to false gods, to God's substance. How is it possible that we could live forevermore in His presence? Here's the irony of the gospel, especially in light of Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7. The irony from John's gospel is that this God became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Where is this God? He came down to earth and revealed Himself most fully in the person of Jesus Christ, that we might see Him, that the disciples could touch Him, dine with Him, walk with Him. 
And the, the irony is that this same Apostle John started his first letter this way, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, the preexistent Word, which we have heard, ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He has revealed Himself in the material, physicalness of the reality of this world, and the salvation that He offers through faith in Him is both body and soul now and forever. Let's trust in Him. Let's pray. Jesus, You are the glorious one. There is no other deserving of worship. Everything else we give value to is backwards, upside down. It enslaves us. It'll kill us. So, Lord, show us the truth through your Holy Spirit, through your Word, through one another, that we might bow down to you alone and give you what you deserve alone. There is no other. You are God. You are Yahweh. You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we praise you in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen.